Good evening. Welcome to Calvary Chapel North Shore. Um, here we are again, of course, doing our uh, video series instead of live audience. But Lord willing, we'll be all back together soon. So um, again, I hope that uh, as you're listening to this, you're well and things are good and that you're being blessed. And so tonight I want to give you a word um, of encouragement. As you know, Pastor Steve and I both have been kind of taking it week by week in this interesting time that we're in. And generally, we just go verse by verse through a book. And um, we've just been pretty topical lately, but it's because there's just messages that the, we feel like the Lord has been putting on our heart. And tonight, um, I really want to bring a word of encouragement, just straight up unadulterated encouragement that I really felt like God put on my heart for me uh, just the other day during a little prayer walk time that I was having with him. And and I just wanted to share it with you guys. It's found in the book of Genesis, chapter 16. I'll give you a second to go ahead and grab your Bible. And what we're gonna do is just go through that whole chapter. Don't panic. It's only uh, about 15 verses. But there's just a wonderful little story tucked into Genesis 16 uh, that I think is going to encourage you. Um, because, and, and I'll just maybe preface it with this, is that I really believe that Right now, as we're over two months into a time of quarantine and social distancing and all of these new terms that we're using all the time now, uh, something that I've noticed personally and with those that I'm connected with um, is that things are really starting to come to a head for a lot of people. And, and I don't mean that in, in a good way. There's a lot of things that are becoming very discouraging with people. It's not all bad. I don't want to paint that picture, but... For many, many people, this has really become a trying time. I've talked to several um, just acquaintances and friends and people that I don't even really know that are just going through uh, hard times in their marriage, hard times financially, hard times um, just internally and questioning what's going to happen. Um, maybe not so much worried about getting sick, but what's going to happen with the economy? Where is this all headed? And, and I just want to give you a word tonight Especially for you, listen, if you're somebody that really feels discouraged and scared and alone in a place you've never been, um, I really think God's got a word. So having said that, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into um, Genesis chapter 16. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. I know that, God, you want to speak to each person that's listening in a way that is directed straight to them and in their circumstance and I thank you, God, that we can read your word and there's just that general understanding of its meaning and all of that. But on the other hand, Lord, you have a way of taking it off the page and by your Holy Spirit, speaking into our lives in a way that gives life and encouragement. And we need that tonight. So Lord, would you please speak to us in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, Genesis chapter 16, and really, um, if you look down you know, at these chapters, um, you're, the first thing you're going to realize is this is uh, a portion of Scripture that's dealing with the great patriarch Abraham. And uh, before we get into chapter 16, which kind of talks a little bit about his story, um, I want to give a little background just quickly. What's led up to this point? Abraham, if you don't remember, was a man that was living in the Ur of the Chaldees, probably the area of Iraq. And God sovereignly came to him and basically, I'm just summing up, says, uh, Abe, I want you to leave the Ur of the Chaldees and go to a place 
that I'm gonna show you. And so he, he packs up all of his stuff, takes his family. They spend some time in Haran. Uh, once his father passes away, they move into um, the area that we would call Israel, where he's wandering around. And when he's 75 years old in chapter 12, God gives Abraham a promise. It's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And basically, again, uh, very much summing up here, but God promises him some things unconditionally. He says, Abraham, I'm gonna give you this land that you're on, the real estate, the actual physical land that you're in. It's gonna be yours. It's gonna be in the future a bit, but you're gonna own this. Your descendants are gonna own this. Speaking of descendants, Abraham, I'm gonna make you a great nation. A whole new nation is gonna be birthed from you, Abraham. And then probably most importantly, from Abraham would come the one that would bless everyone, and that is the Messiah. So this amazing promise. And some time goes by. In fact, about 10 years goes by. And um, everything's great. They're in the land, but he and his wife, Sarah, haven't had any children yet. Well, in chapter 15, God comes to him in a, in a dream or a vision, and he says, Abraham, don't sweat it. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. Abraham says, yes, but you know, where... Where's my child? What are you going to give me? Is, is my servant Eliezer and his kid going to be the descendant? And he's questioning God. And God says, look, again, I'm paraphrasing. Um, no, you're going to have a child from your loins. It's going to come from you. And he reestablishes that Abrahamic covenant and then makes a covenant with, with sacrifice and everything there in chapter 15. Then we come to chapter 16. And there's a little falter of his faith. Look at chapter 16, verse one. And I just wanna work through this uh, verse by verse. It says now in chapter 16, verse one, now Sarai, now that was her name before it was changed to Sarah. Forgive me if I say Sarah instead of Sarai and Abraham instead of Abram. Um, those names kind of changed later. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's a, that's a big statement. She bore him no children. Here's this great promise. You can't have a whole nation come from your line if you can't have children, if you can't have a male. And so um, this is weighing heavy. 10 years have gone by and this promise hasn't happened yet. And by the way, I was noticing, I've never seen this before. In chapter 12, when God gave the promise to Abraham, right after that, there was a test of his faith. It says there was a famine in the land and he freaks out and he goes down to Egypt. He reaffirms that promise in chapter 15. Guess what? Another test of faith. You're gonna see what that test is in a moment. But my point is, is that oftentimes when God makes a promise to you or, or, or there's a promise in your word that you're claiming and it speaks it to your heart, don't be surprised if there's gonna be right on the heels of that a test of some sort. Do you trust God that he's gonna work it out? And see what happened was, is that in chapter uh, 12, when he heard that promise, he dipped down into Egypt to try to get away from the famine. And we're gonna see what happens from that. But all that to say, right back to this, here's, here's Abraham, here's Sarai. And, and 10 years have gone by and they have no children yet. And you can kind of almost feel that tension. Where, what's gonna happen with God's promise? So look at verse one, continues on. She, that is Sarai, had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. She had a female Egyptian servant. Now, where in the world did Abram and Sarai get a female Egyptian servant? Back to chapter 12. 
when they faltered in their faith, when they should have said, I know there's a famine in the land, but God's gonna take care of us. Instead, they scrambled. They went down into Egypt. They get into some trouble there. I'll let you read it later. And when they come out of Egypt, evidently they bring with them this servant girl named Hagar, who is Egyptian. And she's been with them this whole time. Well, check this out. Verse two says, and Sarah said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may be I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram um, as a wife. Now you might be thinking, what in the world is Sarai thinking? This sounds extremely strange to us in our culture and our way of thinking, but believe it or not, in their culture, and no doubt from the culture they came from in the Ur of the Chaldees, and no doubt in the culture of the Egyptians and in the Canaanite culture that they're currently in, this was just normative. This, this wasn't all that weird. Abram would just add this other servant girl to his harem and they would have a child and Sarah and Abram would just kind of adopt that child, call it their own and bada bing, bada boom, promise fulfilled. This is the, this is the um, quintessential example of trying to help God out when God has made a promise and you don't see it happening. So you gotta do something to help God out. Never a good idea. So though, though it sounds weird to us, though it sounds like a crazy idea, it was actually culturally very acceptable and it kind of made sense. I mean, how else? I mean, he's 85 at this point. Kids, I mean, it seems out of the picture. And so they kind of take matters into their own hands. It does say that she gave Hagar to be his wife. Now that would be kind of like the word there means not his primary wife. Like she would be upped in status, but still kind of under Sarai, part of the harem. And so Abram, he agrees to it. Um, and so look what happens. He went into Hagar, verse four, and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, that is when Hagar uh, saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Uh-oh. So Hagar goes into Abram, or Abram goes into Hagar, I should say. They have sexual relations and she comes up pregnant. And now, I mean, you can almost see what's happening with Hagar. A nobody, nothing slave girl raised in status a little bit here. Now she's pregnant, which was a huge honor. And I should have mentioned this earlier, to not have children, especially not to have a, a male child, um, was looked down upon in that culture. In fact, if you didn't have kids, there was clearly something wrong with you. In fact, they would take it a step further and suggest that there's not only something wrong, but God is punishing you, that there must be some secret hidden sin in your life to where God is judging you. And, and maybe that's what was driving this. But Hagar, who now is feeling pretty good about herself, she's pregnant and she's got kind of a new status in the family. And she's looking down her nose now at Sarai. And I don't know what that looked like or how that you know, came out, but it's very clear. She's kind of looking at her like, well, you must be cursed by God, but look how blessed I am. I'm gonna have kids and you're not. And she kind of looked at this, looked down on Sarai, her, her master, her mistress. Well, verse 15, when Sarai, uh, so Sarai said to Abram, 
May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to embrace, to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and between you. And I don't know if this is a justified response by Sarai, but she basically says, look, you know what, Abraham? This is all your fault. Poor Abraham, you know, it was her idea. He just said, okay, he just went along with it. She comes up pregnant. I can't help but wonder if Sarai was thinking, well, maybe it's not me. Maybe there's a problem with my husband. But as soon as Hagar's pregnant, it's very clear that the problem lies with Sarai. And so she's hurt. She's bummed. And then to rub salt in the wound, here's Hagar, you know, making it worse. She freaks out on Abram and says, hey, this is all your fault and you need to take care of this. Which, by the way, I think actually at the end of the day, the blame should be laid at the feet of Abram because he's the head of the household. And you know, it reminds me, just because advice sounds good and just because it's culturally accepted or whatever, at the end of the day, I really laid on Abraham's shoulders as the spiritual leader of his home to say, you know what? I appreciate your idea, honey, and all of that, but we need to just trust the Lord. It was a falter of faith. But here's what he says. He says, verse six, but Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. In other words, she's your servant. Do to her as you please. You take care of it. Look at this next phrase. It says, then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Now, this is kind of where I want, wanted to come with the story. Sarai, this, you know, she's an amazing woman of God. She's later on lifted up as the quintessential example of how a woman should submit to her husband. She's just like this beautiful woman of God. This is not her finest hour, okay? And, and I, I'm so glad that the Bible, you know, shows people how they really are, not perfect. Well, Sarai freaks. She freaks out on Hagar. It says that she treated her harshly. I don't know exactly what that looked like. Uh, the, the word in the Bible harshly means uh, to oppress, uh, to afflict, to put down, belittle. And so it could have been a verbal lashing. She could have just laid into her, maybe in front of all the other servants and all the other family. And who do you think you are? And just maybe she just belittled her lashed at her with her tongue. Maybe she struck her. I don't know. She afflicted her in some reason. Whatever it was, it was pretty out of balance and it was harsh. Again, not Sarai's finest hour. Nonetheless, here's the result. It says uh, in verse... Um, where did I lost my spot? Verse six. And she, that is Hagar, fled from her. She ran away. She bolted. She's like, I don't need this. I'm out of here. By the way, Hagar's name means flight. And she's like, I'm out. I'm catching a flight, if you would. I'm flying out of here. I'm getting out of this, this situation. You know, it's, it's not hard to imagine, by the way. Just, just kind of stop for a moment and, and try to put yourself in Hagar's position. Poor Hagar. Here's this woman, I don't know how, she old. She's old, how old she is. She's probably fairly young still. She's a slave girl from Egypt. She's a foreigner. She's in a foreign land with foreign customs. She's away from her family. She's away from everything that's familiar, all the language, all the custom, all the food. She, whatever circumstance led her into this, she's a slave. She has no rights. She's a woman. So again, in that culture, no rights whatsoever. 
She's a slave to this family. And, and this is a family that claims to know the one true and living God. And I'm sure that they treated her well. I'm sure that they exemplified godly living and all this stuff. But here she is being really abused by people that are claiming to know God. Not the last time that would happen. She's kind of the victim here. She had no choice in the matter of, of being, you know, whether she wants to be Abraham's second wife or whatever. She's just thrown into that. She gets pregnant and now, you know, you know, she was wrong to have that attitude towards Sarai, but now she's being lashed out at it. She's being mistreated, uh, unjustly treated, and she just couldn't take it. And she takes off. She's like, I can't handle this. And I, my heart goes out to her. She's in a tough, tough, tough position. She runs away. Well, that's where we pick up the story and that's where it gets really interesting. It says in verse seven, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. That, in so many ways, is an incredible verse. There's a lot happening there. Who found her? It says the angel of the Lord found her. There's some discussion around who this angel of the Lord is. This is actually the first time that phrase is used, not the first time he's appeared, but it's the first time that phrase is now uh, being used. And what this is a, re a reference to, most believe, and I believe, I think it's actually clear from the passage, that this is what is called a pre-incarnate or a, a pre-in-flesh appearance of none other than Jesus Christ. The word angel just, seem, just simply means messenger, the messenger of Jehovah. And this is none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It's not, the, it's, it's not the last time we'll see this. It happens uh, several times in the Old Testament, but this is the Lord. By the way, I know that because look at verse 13, if you jump down real quick, it says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Now we'll get to that verse in a minute, but my point for now is simply this, that she recognizes this is the Lord. This is the Lord, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Jehovah, Yahweh, I am. This is God. This is Jesus. And I just want you to think about this for a second. Who found her? The angel of the Lord came to her. You know, I've been spending a lot of time in my, in my personal devotions in Colossians, and I've been thinking about Jesus. And listen to what Colossians chapter one says about the nature of who Jesus really is. In verse 15 of chapter one, Colossians says, he is the image that is the exact representation of the invisible God. He is the firstborn, it means in preeminence, of all creation. Listen to this. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. We must be very careful about taking a low view of Jesus. He is the God of the universe, the second person in the triune of this triune God that we serve. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of life. I love what Hebrews chapter one, verse three says about Jesus. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
In John chapter 17, we call it the great high priestly prayer in John 17. Listen to something Jesus says when he's praying to the Father the night before he goes to the cross. In verse five, he says, uh, John 17, five, and now Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. And I just say that because sometimes, sometimes I think we take a low view of Jesus. Listen, Jesus, the creator of the universe, the pre-existent one, the almighty God, Jesus himself finds her at the well. Where did he find her? Notice where he found her. Verse seven, it says, he found her in the wilderness at the spring that's on the way to Shur. The wilderness that she was in, the word wilderness just means desert. It means desolate place. If you look on your map, you know, Bible maps, some, you know, online or in the back of your Bible or something, she's on her way to Shur, the desert of Shur. She is in one of the most barren, hot, dry places on the planet. Clearly, she's heading back towards Egypt. That's where that would have been heading. And she's not gonna make it. She is uh, this woman who has no supplies and no means, and she is going to die in that desert. She's holed up, she stops at this, this well, and you kind of get the feeling like she stops there as if she says, what am I gonna do now? Where did, he find, where did Jesus find this woman? Well, he found her in one of the most hopeless helpless, loneliest, hardest places you can possibly imagine. She didn't know where to go. She's hopeless. She has no help. She's no doubt depressed. She's no doubt lonely. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that where you, you literally look around and go, I don't know what to do next. And everything I thought was gonna happen is not happening. Everything I thought was gonna be good is not good. And I am finding myself in a place I never thought I'd find myself in a million years. He found her in the wilderness. And maybe you're in your own wilderness tonight. But you know what I love? He found her. He found her there. He went to her there. By the way, this is so Jesus. This is so Jesus. He didn't go to Abram. He didn't go to some other important man in that culture. Who does Jesus, the almighty God of the universe, the preexistent one, who does he reveal himself to? A pregnant Egyptian slave girl in the middle of nowhere. She's like the OG woman at the well right here. It's just so like his character. He goes to this woman. Jesus gravitates towards the least and the last and the lost. That's just what he does. And he comes to this woman at her time of greatest need. And I love this. Check this out. It says, he found her at that well. In verse eight, he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? He, I love this. He knows her name. The Lord knew her name. He knew who she was. And I wish, you know, it's always hard when you're reading the, the words of the Lord. Like, how do you, you know, what kind of voice inflection do you use? You know, this is the Lord speaking. But I have to believe it's in a tender voice. It's not in a harsh, what are you doing out here? You know, I think it was more of like, Hagar, where did you come from? Where are you going? Where, where are you going? Now, listen, this is Jesus we're talking about. He knows her name. He knows who she is. He's the God of all the universe. 
And when he asks her, where are you coming from and where are you going? Do you think it's because he doesn't have that information? No, of course he has that information. He's not asking so that he can find out. He's probing. He's drawing her out. It's as if he's saying, what are you doing here? Why are you here? He did the same thing to Adam in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. It says that the Lord was looking for him. Adam, where are you? It's not that God didn't know where he was. He was drawing him out. He did the same thing to Elijah when Elijah was depressed and hiding in a cave. Elijah, what are you doing here? And and he's just saying, it's almost like he's saying, my daughter, what, what are you doing here? How did you get here? And she responds and she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. I, I love, by the way, just the candor and the honesty of, of Hagar right here. Look, I know I'm a slave. You've just reminded me that I belong to her. And I know I probably shouldn't have done this, but I'm out. I couldn't handle it anymore. I'm running away. By the way, God can handle your honesty. <laughs> I think he prefers our honesty. And I think it's okay when, when you, you are finding yourself in those dry desert experiences of life and those hard, challenging times to be honest with God. I think you should always be respectful. I, I don't like this idea of just screaming at God and telling him what you really think. You know, I think you need to be careful with that because he's God. And I think we should always have that fear of the Lord. But yes, absolutely, yes, a thousand times yes. Be honest with him and just lay out, this is where I'm at, God. This is where I am and I, maybe I shouldn't be here, but I'm here. And she just lays it out and I love this. Look how he handles her. Jesus is so perfect in the way that he handles us individually. It says that the angel of the Lord says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now let's pause there for a minute. This is maybe not what you expect the Lord to say to her. He doesn't say, I know, man, they, they totally mistreated you. You know what? I got a way better situation for you. Let's get out of here. He says, no, you know what, Hagar? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and I want you to submit to Sarai. She's your master and you need to submit to her. He, he directs her, listen, to go right back and face that real difficult situation. Now, we'll talk more about that in a second, but that, that's, that'd be hard. You know, when she goes, how humbling is that walk? You know, she comes back into camp, I'm back, you know, sorry, I freaked out, even though you were a jerk to me. She had to take a very low and humbling place and submit herself. And we know that years later, when after Isaac is born, she's kicked out of the family again. I mean, things are not easy for Hagar. God's not saying everything's going to be easy, but he's saying, I want you to go back and I want you to submit. But notice what he also does. God says, but there's something else in play here that you need to know. You are pregnant, but you're not just pregnant. He says, I'm going to multiply your offspring so that they can't be numbered for the multitude. He says, you got to go back and it's going to be tough, but I want to tell you something. There's something bigger going on here. There's a much larger plan in play. And though it's going to be tough, just know that I'm doing something. I'm working something out way bigger than you can possibly imagine, but I need you to go back and submit and just do the hard thing. Well, what exactly does this mean? Check this out. He goes on, he kind of elaborates. 
on this promise. He says, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. So you're not only going to have a baby, you're going to have a son. That's great news. And you're going to call him Ishmael. And it goes on to say, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The name Ishmael, by the way, means God hears. God hears. Isn't that beautiful? It's as if God is saying, I've heard you. I've heard your affliction. I've heard your cry. And you're going to have a son. And he's actually going to be the father of a whole other nation. By the way, Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. And so this is kind of where the genesis of all of that is. And it goes on verse 12 and says, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> His hand is going to be against everyone. And everyone's hand is going to be against him, and he should dwell over against his kinsmen. And that's maybe more of a study we can look at another time. But basically, he's going to be kind of a wild guy, but, and he's going to be kind of at odds with uh, the other people. But you know what? The, the point is, is, in our text tonight is, Hagar, I'm doing something special. I, a whole nation is going to come from you. A whole people group is going to come from you. That was a blessing. God is blessing her and telling her that something amazing is going to be done. Now this, leave it to me. I can take 45 minutes to get to the one simple point that I want to get to, but look at verse 13. This is what has touched my heart over the years and over the last couple of days. And I pray it's an encouragement to you. Look at the way Hagar now responded. It says in verse 13, so Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Or literally, you are El Roy, which means the God who sees me. She names the Lord. She says, you are the Lord, the one that saw me. She says, you are El Roy, the God who sees me. And she, she if you would, coins this name for God. And if you don't know this, it's a great thing to, to look up sometime. Just do a Google search or something or um, on all the names of God. Remember when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, he said, um, I am that I am. I am the the one that always has been and always will be, I am. And I've often joked that I am that I am does not sound like a name. It sounds like an incomplete sentence. And in a way it is. God was declaring, I am. I always have been, I always will be, and I will always be, and I am whatever it is that you ultimately need. When Jesus finally came on the scene in, in the book of John, there's these I am statements that Jesus makes. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And Jesus was very clearly, de clearly declaring, I am the personification of Jehovah and I am everything you need. I am salvation. In fact, Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation. But the point is, is that God can't be confined to one little name. This is one aspect. And this is what she pulls out. This is what she is so touched by. She is so encouraged by. She says, you know who you are? You're Elroi. You are the God who sees me. And she goes on to say, because truly I have seen the one who looks after me. Now there's differences in translations there. Uh, some have translated that, um, have I really seen the one who has seen me? Another translation basically says, um, I can't believe I'm still alive after seeing you. But she's blown away that she has got to see the one. But here's what she says, you're the one who sees me. 
And then finally, we're almost done. Look at verse 14. Therefore, the well was called. Now she's gonna name this well because that's kind of a typical thing. If something significant happened at this place, it would name that place. She names this well. Be'er l'che ro'ai. Ro'ai, ro'ai. How do you say it? El ro'ai. In other words, this is what it literally means. The well of the living God who sees me. The well of the living God who sees me. And it goes on to say, gives its location. And Hagar bore Abram a son, called his name, uh, whom she bore Hagar. Abram was 86 year old when Hagar uh, was born, or Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And that's what I just want to say, real simply. She names that well. This is the well of the living God who sees me. And this is really what I just want to encourage you with tonight. God is the God who sees. And God sees you. God sees you. He sees right where you are. You see, what do you mean, what do you mean God sees me? He sees exactly where you are. And you may not, you know, we're not gonna have a circumstance like Hagar, but listen, you might be in a wilderness place right now in your life and God sees, he sees the circumstance you're in. He sees the pressure financially. He sees the pressure with your wife and your kids or your husband. He sees the pressure with the job. Is it gonna be there? Is it not gonna be there? He sees everything that's happening in your life and he's absolutely 100% aware and sees the circumstances. Not only does he see the circumstances, he sees you. In other words, he sees who you are. Here's your homework, by the way, tonight. Read Psalm 139. And God declares, the psalmist, excuse me, declares about God, he knows what we're going to think before we think it. He knows when we sit down. He knows when we stand up. He knows our thoughts afar off. He knows our habits. He knows our tendencies. And I want you to know this tonight. God sees you. And maybe I could put it in these terms. Um, It might help us understand. He gets you. God gets you. Maybe nobody else gets you, but God does. He gets the way you think. He understands your habits. He knows your propensities. He knows the good things. He knows the bad things. He knows the way you process. Listen, he knows your dreams. He knows your heart's desires. He knows all of it. He also knows your future. And he also knows the plans that he has for you. God sees you. And I don't mean you in a generic way as as in a, a, a face in a sea of faces. I mean, he sees you. And he cares about you. And what blew her away was she said, in a sense, how can this be that you, God, see me, a foreign pregnant slave, a nobody in this culture, and you came to me, and you met me where I was at. And I want you to know tonight, and I think somebody needs to hear this, God sees you tonight. He sees your circumstance. He sees you your personality. He sees what you're wrestling with right now. He sees what you're grappling with and he knows. Maybe you feel forgotten. You ever felt forgotten by God? 
And I want to remind you tonight, you're not. He sees you. Notice what he did, by the way. What, what was Jesus's, you know, directive for Hagar? He sent her back. He didn't remove her from the tough situation. He, in essence, just said, I'm with you through it. He sent her back into a difficult situation that went on for years. But she was stoked. Why? She was changed. Why? Because she knew something. He sees me. <laughs> He's with me. He, he found me in my lowest place. He came to me. Uh, he's with me in this tough situation. And, and listen, I'm not promising you tonight that God's gonna remove all the difficulties. He may just say, you know what? You need to stay in it. But know this, he sees you and he's with you. Notice what else he did. He gave her a promise. And what, what was that promise? Very specific, clearly, to her about having a child and all of that. But on, on a broader sense, listen, know this. God is working something bigger than you could possibly imagine. You may not understand, and I may not understand, with all the current circumstances and the hardships or whatever, how is any of this working out? Listen, know this. God is at work, and he's doing something much larger and bigger than you could possibly imagine. She had no idea that she would be the mother of a whole nation. And I don't know exactly what God's working in your life, but I know this. God doesn't waste trials. God doesn't waste hard times. He's molding you into the man or the woman he's wanting you to be and he's working circumstances out in a way that are gonna eventually, and we may not know till heaven, but we're gonna look back and say, oh my goodness, Lord, you were working all of that to do this and to do this and to do this. And what, uh, There was a much larger picture being painted than my little circumstance. And I wanna encourage you with that. He sees you, he sees the plan that he has for you. I want you to be, guys, I want you to be encouraged tonight. God sees you. He loves you. He's with you. He knows what you're going through. He's going through it with you. And he's got a plan and a purpose that it far exceeds anything you could possibly imagine. Amen? Now, my heart was also stirred on this. Maybe you're watching this tonight and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. You, you know, this, I, I, I was trying to put my finger on why this story means so much to me. I, I, why do I tear up when I read this story? Why does it always stick out to me every time I read it? Why did it pop into my head again? And the conclusion I came to is because in a sense, it's my testimony. You see, I, I grew up in a, in a good home, a broken home with divorce and everything else, and, but still a good home. And, and I had good parents and all of that, but there was something in me listen, even after I became a Christian, where I just felt lost and I just felt insignificant and I didn't know where I fit and I didn't fit with the jocks at school and I didn't fit with the surfers at school and I didn't fit with student government and I wasn't cool like them and I wasn't the, and I just didn't know where I fit in life and I just felt lost. And there was a moment in my life, I was actually on a high school retreat actually a missions trip to Mexico. And the Lord spoke a verse into my life. It was actually Jeremiah 29, 11, that he has a plan for my life. And what blew me away by that is the thought of how in the world could God think about me? And all of a sudden I realized that 
the God of the universe doesn't just love people in general, he loves me. And maybe you're listening to this or watching and and you've never had that revelation. I wanna just encourage you and I wanna tell you this tonight. And I can tell you, but I'm praying that the spirit reveals it to your heart. God loves you right where you're at. The good, the bad, the ugly, he loves you. And he loves you so much that he came to, to, into this world and he lived among us and he suffered and he was mistreated and he was tempted and he lived this life perfectly. And at the end of his life, at 33 years, he died on the cross. But the Bible says he didn't die for the sins or anything wrong that he had done. The Bible makes it very clear that he was dying as a substitute that all the sins that I'd committed, all the things that I'd done wrong and that the world had done wrong were taken and placed upon him. When Jesus died on the cross, he was dying as a substitute for mankind and for me personally and for you. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. And three days later, he raised from the dead, conquered sin and death, and then he ascended into heaven. And listen, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says we've all sinned. The Bible says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But the Bible says that if we believe in Jesus Christ, that is, if we put our trust in him to be our Lord and Savior and just reach out with the hand of faith and receive the free gift of salvation, that we'll be saved. You know, this life's gonna be hard and we're gonna go through trials. But you know what? I gave my life to Jesus. He came into my life and no matter what I go through, he's with me. And if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to do that tonight. You need to know he's trying to find you through this video, through this podcast. He is reaching out to find you at your wilderness and tell you that he loves you and that you don't have to live a life of meaninglessness and hopelessness and that you can know where you're going when you die and you can have eternal life now and you can be a part of the family and his beloved. And all you need do is simply by faith receive the free gift of salvation that he purchased with his blood. He loves you. He's reaching out to you. And so if you've never received Christ as your savior, would you do that tonight? And and I'll pray in a minute to give you an opportunity. The rest of us, maybe we know the Lord, doesn't make us immune from problems. Just know tonight he sees you. He sees you and he's with you and he's working something out. Amen. All right, let's pray. And I wanna just pray right now for anyone who's listening or watching that has never put their faith in Christ. And if that's you, I'm gonna challenge you right now to stop what you're doing if if you can and and pray this prayer. I'm gonna lead it, but you gotta pray it, okay? Pray something like this. It's gotta come from your heart. Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner and I'm lost. And there's a lot of, things I don't understand about you, but I sense in my heart, I need you. I believe you came to this earth. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you raised from the dead three days later and ascended to the Father. And I believe in you. I need a savior. I need you to find me. Please come into my life I want to receive the free gift of salvation right now. I turn from my sin. I turn from those things and I turn to you. Save me in Jesus' name. 
And Father, I pray right now for those of us who know you, but find ourselves in a wilderness, discouraged, hopeless, helpless place. And I pray, God, that you would minister to our hearts this simple truth of who you are, El Royi, the God who sees. And thank you, Lord, that you see us right where you are and you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us, and you're working things out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. And I pray that soon we'll be together having church the way it was intended. So Lord bless you tonight. Have a wonderful evening.